the whole slope collapses. And I mean, it's like, it's like uh, swimming a big rapid with a couple of pickle buckets on your feet, you know? Don't you want the data? You know, it seems like a lot of times the bad decisions are made when we're just moving too fast. Welcome to episode 2.8 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. With additional support from Black Diamond and Peeps, live, ski, repeat. And 10 Barrel Brewing, here's to living it up with a beer in hand. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. How am I doing with this goal? I haven't gotten any feedback in a bit, so if you have any thoughts about the show, please share them in an email or rate and review the show on iTunes. Today, I'm excited to bring Carl Berkland onto the show. I first met Carl at the National Avalanche School maybe 10 years ago. I remember being impressed by the ease at which he explained complex processes of metamorphism and fracture mechanics. Carl embodies the merging of theory and practice through balancing his extensive research and thirst for knowledge with his strong history of ski patrolling and avalanche forecasting. This guy has spent some time digging in the snow, I tell you what. Carl and I discuss the history and evolution of snowpack tests, how to apply them, and what he thinks is coming down the pipe for evolving the current tests. He gives us a glimpse into some of the research and projects being done at the Montana State Snow Science Program and shares a couple close calls that have stuck with him throughout his career. Enjoy our talk with Carl. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks, Caleb. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Yeah, no problem. So I was hoping you could just introduce yourself a little bit and give us some of your background in the in the avalanche world. And I know you wear many hats, so maybe explain some of the some of the hats that you wear. Sure. The, within the community. Yeah. So, um, well, I got my start doing avalanche stuff as a ski patroller, and um, I was ski patrolling in a small ski area in Colorado, and then um, I got a job out here in Utah at Snow Basin. And so I was working at Snow Basin for a few years. And at that time I was going to school and the more I went to school, I was, I was, uh, I was doing biology, but I was reading all this stuff about snow and I got super excited about snow given the ski patrolling and the avalanches we were seeing and stuff like that. And so, um, eventually, uh, I decided to, that it was time to go to graduate school and I went to Montana state to do some graduate work. So that was, that was really fortuitous. I got to work with John Montaigne and Bob Brown up there. And, and, um, and in the course of doing that graduate work, 
Uh, there was no real focused avalanche forecast center there in, in Bozeman. And, you know, I'd been down here in Utah and seen the Utah Avalanche Center. And, and it just turned out my second year of grad school, or no, it was my first year of grad school, I met um, the person who does the recreation on the forest there. And she said, boy, what would it take to start an avalanche center here? And I said, oh, well, you know, I mean, I think we could run it on grants and donations for a while and stuff. And so she was all excited about it. And so, so we started the avalanche center in 1990 and ran it for two years on just straight grants and donations. And then we went to the forest and said, Hey, do you like what we're doing? And if you do, then we need some actual positions here. And, and, um, and, you know, we'd done well and the community was really psyched about it. And so we got the avalanche center going. And so that was, that was pretty awesome. And then after that, you know, I ran the avalanche center for, oh, about 10 years. And during that time, I was also going, I decided, I actually, I got a grant when I was working on my master's degree from the National Science Foundation to work toward my PhD. So after running the Avalanche Center for a few years, I started working on my PhD at the same time. And I would go to school in the fall, and then in the winters, I'd uh, come back and run the Avalanche Center, but I'd also collect my field data. So, and finished my PhD at Arizona State in 97. And then uh, <clears throat> then I started working with Doug Abramite to try and start the National Avalanche Center. Doug had been doing a whole bunch of work. He'd been um, trying to coordinate the avalanche centers and also coordinating the military artillery program, but he was way understaffed for what he was trying to do. And so, and he didn't have any funding really either. So the two of us got together and uh, worked, worked with um, different sort of higher ups in the forest service and got them to buy off on the concept of the national avalanche center in 1999. And so that's when I started working with with Doug worked with him for oh, about 11 or 12 years. And, uh, and then, you know, Doug retired and after he retired, then I got hired as the director for the national avalanche center. So that's what I'm doing now. Can you explain, um, a little bit of, of the purpose of the national avalanche center to our, our listeners? Cause yeah. it's not, it's not really a forecast center, right? No, it's not. Yeah. So the national avalanche center is really just, um, well, we always call ourselves the big center with the or the small center with the big name because it's really just myself and Simon Trotman. And um, it's a what we do is we provide oversight and guidance for all the Forest Service Avalanche Centers. So there's 13 of them. And in addition, we do all the oversight for the military artillery program. And then we also are sort of the main contact for the whole agency when it comes to avalanches, whether it's media or whether we have a situation like a, a ranger district wants, you know, has a ski area expansion and they need some avalanche expertise or someone's doing, um, you know, someone has snowmobile trails that are threatened by avalanches or anything like that. Any avalanche issues that come up, we often get called. And then the last piece, which I'm particularly fond of, is we are also involved with technology transfer. So finding um, any new avalanche information that's going, or rather, you know, any scientific discoveries or technology that's being developed. And we try and take that and 
hand that back down to our forecast centers, as well as doing our own um, studies on different topics that are pertinent to um, to our avalanche centers and also to the ski areas, to our permittees. Right. So, so you guys have done a lot to kind of unify um, the separate 13 avalanche centers and, and I'm sure it's been a little bit difficult to get everybody on the same page, but um, I know I've seen some big strides in the last few years just amongst the websites, you know, you get kind of a yep. similar look amongst the websites. And I think that's really helpful to the public when they're traveling to different areas to, to recreate. Yeah. I mean, you know, the strength of our avalanche center network is that each one of these avalanche centers, um, they were really a grassroots operation when they started and it took a lot of blood, sweat and tears, both for the people that started them and also for the community. So there's a lot of local ownership in these avalanche centers and, um, a lot of pride in what they do. Um, at the same time, you know, we kind of would like all the avalanche centers to, like you say, you know, to provide products that people as they travel around would see as being the same kind of thing and know what to expect. And except at the same time as that, we also want to give them the flexibility to innovate in the ways that they want to innovate. So, um, you know, we don't, control the budget for any of the local avalanche centers. So they're completely autonomous. That's the way the Forest Service works. It's a real dispersed organization and they can do what they want to do. But um, we just try and provide some persuasion and um, and some framework, you know. So for example, right now, um, some of the avalanche centers are using some of these same sorts of, um, oh, the same sorts of uh, uh, formats for their advisory. And if they're, if they're close to being the same, we're trying to help guide them to be more and more the same, you know, at the same time as leaving enough flexibility, if another avalanche center is really not excited about that and they have other ideas that they think might work better, you know, give them the flexibility to do that as well. Sure. So in addition to your role as director of the National Avalanche Center, you're also a adjunct professor at MSU? That yeah, correct? that's right. So I'm an adjunct professor in the earth sciences department. And so in that role, um, I help, oh, I help guide some of the graduate students up there and work with them. Um, in the past I've taught some courses and I might teach some more courses in the future, but mostly my role there has been, uh, just working with different graduate students, which has been awesome because, you know, a lot of these graduate students have ended up um, either working at or running different avalanche centers or, or, um, playing, you know, significant roles in the snow and avalanche community. So it's really one of the, probably one of the coolest things. Yeah. So, so you're very tied into both the research and the practitioner side of, of avalanche science. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Try to be, you know, I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, now, since I'm not actively forecasting, um, I still try and make sure that I get out with the guys at the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center and make sure that I go out, whether it's um, investigating some avalanches or get out when the conditions are, are pretty unstable so that at least um, I've still got my fingers in the snow. Because otherwise you can get just so separate from it that you might be going off with your work on some tangent and you might be going off someplace that people aren't really very interested in. 
And that's what's really advantageous for me is I'm just co-located with the folks at the GNFAC. So we're, you know, just in adjacent cubicles. Mm -hmm. And so in the wintertime, I can get out with those guys. And then also, if I have an idea or I'm working on something, I can always bounce it off of them and go, hey, does this make sense? Or is this worthwhile to pursue? Or is this just too far out there that no one's ever going to need it, need it or want to use it? Yeah, it seems like a great relationship there. Um, can you? So are you working on any projects or research with grad students right now? Can you highlight any of the work being done at MSU? Let's see. So, um, so at MSU, the it's taken a little bit of a, a swing in a different direction recently with Yordi Hendricks there. Cause Yordi's working a lot on, he's trying to do a little bit more of the psychology of decision-making in high risk environments. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my main interest is more in physical processes, what's going on in the snowpack and how can we, as professionals and as recreationists, how can we better assess the snowpack? How can we, um, how can we better understand the snowpack and understand what's going on in it? Um, so, you know, along those lines, you already got a couple of grad students now who are working on concepts related to um, decision making in some of the areas uh, adjacent to Bridge or Bowl. Um, and so they're mapping like where groups of people are going and then trying to do things like, um, well, one of the students, John Sykes, he's got a, a study where he's giving people a GPS. They're traveling out of bounds, coming back in bounds and then filling out a questionnaire. And then he's trying to look at, you know, how people are traveling based on like what the danger level is, what the snow conditions are like and things like that, um, to get some idea of where these decisions are coming from. So, you know, when folks are working with um, different avalanche related things, I usually get pulled into the committee. Like I'm on John's committee and there's another gal, uh, Diana Salas, and I'm on her committee. And then um, there's a new student, Andrew, he's working on deep slabs, um, but he hasn't, you know, totally defined how he's going to work on deep slabs, but I'll be working with him too. So, um, and then one of the real exciting things at, at the university right now is that um, they hired a new professor in the engineering department, um, Kevin Hammonds. And Kevin's uh, done a lot of uh, real interesting laboratory work looking at ice crests and temperature gradients across ice crests and mm-hmm. things like that, which is super cool. And so he's starting up his research program. And they've also just recently advertised for another position there in the engineering department. And, um, and I think, you know, hopefully we could get some real, some real, uh, another top caliber person like Kevin there and, uh, do some real interesting work. Cause, you know, Ed Adams <clears throat> started this incredible, uh, lab there, the cold lab. And it's one of the best facilities in the whole world for looking at snow. And so now Kevin's going to be working, working in that lab and, and whomever they hire as well. So, so there's a lot of great things going on at MSU. I mean, I think we're really fortunate in Bozeman because we have both this strong academic component at MSU, and then we have a really strong uh, practitioner component from, you know, the folks at Bridger and Big Sky and, and uh, Yellowstone Club and stuff. So, so it's a nice community. And then the Avalanche Center, of course. Right. 
Can you explain to our listeners just a little bit more about what the cold lab is? Because I think that's really important. I know there's been a lot of research and, and a, a lot of good information that has come out of that. Yeah, yeah. So so the cold lab up at MSU, I forget the exact initials for it, but the, it is, it's got um, all these different environmentally controlled chambers and they have developed techniques for actually um, creating... Um, kind of new fallen snow and then kevin's actually moving this little wind tunnel in there so you can you can recreate you know windblown snow and then they have all these different instruments so they've got instruments to take high speed photographs of fractures for example they have uh it's called a micro ct so um and and with that you can take a little sample and then you can you can do an image of the whole thing and then you can put it back in the lab and put it under a temperature gradient and keep on moving it back and forth and watch how the grains change and watch how the crystal structure changes in the, the microstructure. So, um, so there's a lot of sort of interesting basic research going on there that relates to, you know, snow crystals, metamorphism, how things fracture, um, and that sort of thing. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's a, a very valuable res- resource there. Um, so, Carl, you, you said that you, you really kind of gravitate towards the stability test side of things and kind of the physical snowpack structure side of, of, of snow science and avalanche mechanics. Um, let's, let's dive a little bit more into stability tests. Sure. Um, I, I'm, you, I'm sure you've spent a ton of time digging in the snow, and I know you have. Um, any idea how many rouge block tests you've ever dug or, <laughs> or extended column oh, tests you've, you've conducted? Yeah, lots. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've yeah. done quite a bit of work with uh, looking at spatial variability as well. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my undergraduate, or rather my master's degree at MSU, I did um, spatial variability work, and it was right when the whole concept of spatial variability was just coming into four, I mean, people were just starting to understand just how variable the snowpack was. Mm -hmm. I think on a, on a um, rough level, people understood it, but no one had really quantified it Mm -hmm. very well. And, um, and for that study, we actually had what was the precursor to the snow micro pen. It was this, um, you know, we, Actually, the microprocessor, which was probably, you know, one one hundredth as powerful as your phone, um, actually was carried around in this ammo can, this big ammo can with a huge battery. And yeah, so it was it was pretty primitive by today's standards. And and then we had this probe that we pushed down into the snow and I would do anywhere from well, I think some of those days we were doing 500, even 700 uh, profiles in a day. And, and then we we're mapping these slopes and mapping snow depth and mapping different layers and things like that. And so, um, you know, that was sort of my first, first, uh, time really trying to quantify spatial variability. Cause I'd seen it when I was patrolling. I mean, I'm sure you saw it when you were patrolling too, Sure. you know, and, and there was one event at snow basin that really stuck with me. And, and it was an event where like I was, um, I was running this route and we traverse low through this one area before they shoot it with an avalancher. So we traverse low through the area and we we're on this little hill on the other side 
And, um, and then they started shooting the avalanche while we were getting some shots ready for going around this corner. And, um, while they were shooting their shots or they shot a couple shots and nothing happened. And then they shot another shot. And when that other shot hit, like the entire bowl went out, including the old shot placements and just took the whole bowl out three to five feet deep, ran on the surface or layer. And it was just like, you know, I mean, in my head, I'm just thinking, wow, there's a lot we don't know here because, you know, usually you throw a charge and you got a shot hole there and you'd like to think that that general area is safe. Sure. And so when shot holes disappear off the side of the mountain, you're pretty concerned. And that was really exactly, yeah, you're scratching your head going, huh? And, uh, and so that was really the start for me where I was, I was sitting there going, wow, what's going on? And, and it seemed like the more I asked people questions, like I had all these different questions in my head and I'd ask all these people these questions about stuff. And, um, and a lot of times, even some of the, you know, leaders in the field at that time, they'd just, they'd go, yeah, we don't know. We don't know about that. And we don't know about that. And I thought, I thought, man, there is so much that we need to try and figure out, you know, and that's when um, I decided to go back to grad school and, and start it at MSU. So, yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah. And so there was a lot of, you know, for the first mm, 10 or 15 years that I did research, a lot of my focus was on spatial variability and, um, and we found out some interesting things, but we also pounded our head against a brick wall for a really long time, you know, cause you keep on trying to think, well, maybe I can figure this, you know, maybe I can crack this nut. Maybe I can figure out, okay, how come we have these variations? And if we can figure that out and can map it on other slopes, then we're going to find out where we want to put our pits. We're going to find out where we want to put our explosives and we'll be, we'll be good to go. The problem is, is that we can describe a certain situation. Like if we get just sort of the perfect setup, um, we can describe maybe what caused the variation that time. Maybe we had wind, maybe we had a certain ice crust at a different layer. Maybe we had a surface or event that then the wind blew down part of it, or some of it got fried by the sun or something. Um, but the problem for us is that those patterns are also always changing. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, you'll talk to a person who's been a longtime patroller and they'll say, yeah, it seems like I always want to put my shot here. So there's probably a pretty good, pretty good um, probability that that spot is a spot that's good for triggering. Mm -hmm. But um, you can have a winner that's totally different and then things change on you again, you know? So it's really a, yeah, it's 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 very complicated, which also makes it fun. Or as the climate's changing too, right? As the climate's changing too, yeah. Getting different patterns there. We might get different patterns and we might get, you know, different types of avalanches that we're not used to seeing in certain areas. Um I know at Bridger we had a we had this huge wet slab cycle. Uh, it was back in like twenty twelve, you know. And um I think with some of these intermountain and continent continental areas that aren't used to seeing wet snow and aren't used to seeing rain. Um, we're seeing more rain now mm -hmm. and we could definitely see, you know, it's one of those deals where you really have to understand the snowpack so that you can understand that sort of the physics governing the snowpack are the same, no matter where you are. And, um, so sometimes you might be in Colorado 
but you might start to form more of a snowpack like like the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Or you might be in the Northwest and end up with Colorado snowpack too, yeah. you know, depending on how things set, set up that year. Sure. So, so you started talking about a little bit of the progression and evolution of stability tests. Um, can you can you continue talking a little bit about that? Just the evolution of tests that you've seen uh, throughout your career. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's no, come a long way. Yeah, it's uh, it has. I think you know um, when I started back in the late seventies and early eighties, the stability test of choice for everybody was the shovel shear. You know, so you stuck your shovel in and you pulled back on the block and, and, um, and I remember at, at, uh, when I was patrolling, I remember thinking, wow, there's all these layers that are coming out in this test that we never see avalanche activity on. Hmm. Like, like, um, I remember going to an area where there'd been some wind effect and there were a bunch of grapple layers and like every grapple layer, boom, it just comes out. Boom. The next one comes out. Boom. The next one comes out. And you're like, Oh my God, look at all these layers, but you'd throw explosives all over it and nothing would happen. You know? And you, and I was thinking there's just, you know, there's some pieces missing here. And, um, and one of those pieces or, or the big improvement came there in the mid eighties when we all heard about the Rouge block test, which was developed over in Switzerland. And that seemed like such a great test because all of a sudden you had something that's getting stressed by a skier on their skis and it's a big block. So you're getting, you know, you're getting some propagation across that block. And, um, but of course the big problem with it was just that it took a long time, Mm -hmm. you know, it took, it took some considerable effort. It wasn't that bad. You know, once you got good at it, if you had a saw and a ski pole or something, it wasn't that bad. But, and then the other thing that was a little bit challenging with it was, you know, people would jump differently. Some people would jump really hard. Some people would jump soft and you're going, Hmm, you know, and when I was going to school in, um, oh, when I was going to school in Montana, one of the things that people were starting to do then were, were variations on the compression test. So we would often take blocks and stack blocks up on top of a column and see how many blocks you had to stack to get the column to go. And then you'd estimate the density and you'd have something of a certain amount of load that would get it to go, um, get that, you know, that little block of snow to go. Um, but that didn't seem like it was capturing everything either. You know, sometimes you could stack just a whole bunch of snow on top of there and you knew it was going to take less snow than that to Mm -hmm. get an avalanche. And, but you'd stack a little bit of snow and you'd tap it. You'd give it a little bit of a dynamic tap on top and you'd see it break off. And I was like, hmm, okay. You know, and, and so, you know, before long we were tapping on shovels. And, um, and then we heard, you know, that the Canadians had been doing this for a while and they had sort of a, a more uh, structured progression, you know, from wrist taps to elbow taps to shoulder taps. And um, so I started you using a lot of compression tests and compression tests were great. You know, it, it seemed like compression tests and rouge blocks were a big improvement over, over the, um, Oh, over the shovel shear. Mm-hmm. But there still seemed to be something missing. Like some days you'd get like an easy compression test, but you just knew in your gut that like you were not going to find avalanches that day. And then some days you'd be doing your compression test and you'd be hitting it pretty hard 
But the way the block came off would just kind of give you the willies. You'd just be going, oh, man, what's going on here? So so that's when um, I started thinking about there's really something going on here with the way the block fractures and the way it comes off. And um, I started working on this idea of sheer quality with Ron Johnson, who was working with me at the Avalanche Center there in Bozeman. And so we went out and collected a bunch of data um, looking at, and, and we just decided, hey, we want it to be super simple. We're just going to have this quality one, which is going to be a, a sheer quality that just makes you jump. You know, you're like, oh, that looks terrible. Or a quality three where it's like, ah, that's just no big deal. Or that middle ground, which is just sort of a classic shear, you know, mm-hmm. it's usually plainer and whatnot, and that'd be quality too. So, um, unbeknownst to us at the same time, uh, Bruce Jameson was working with some of his students. Um, I can't remember which students he was working with at the time. One of them was Alec Van Herwenheinen and, and Alec and he were, um, were looking at fracture character, which was essentially the same thing. You know, so when people say, well, you know, this one's different that way and that one's different that way, they're, they're really, you know, like I've sat in pits with Bruce and, and we've, we've compared our notes and, and they're really comparable. You know, if you have a sudden, sudden fracture character, it's a Q1. Mm -hmm. If you have a resistant planar, that's a Q2. And if you have a break, that's a Q3. Mm -hmm. So, or progressive collapse. So, so you're, you know. You can use one or the other. It sure. doesn't really matter. But um, but anyway, we both found that that as long as you, you know, we figured that this block, the way it broke, something about the way that it broke had to tie into propagation somehow. And so, yeah, so we, so, um, you know, and then we started applying it to Roosh blocks too. And the Swiss were already saying, you know, saying whether the whole block came off or just part of the block. And I think that was a really important thing too, because, you know, a whole block Roosh block is going to definitely be a quality one chair, you know? And, um, and yeah, so we were sort of, we were sort of getting at this idea of propagation, but mm-hmm. we weren't really there yet. And um, trying to figure out, you know, what, what we do next. And then I got a, um, I got an email from a ski patroller in Colorado, Ron Simenhoys. And Ron said, you know, and, and, and it's funny cause I, I'll often get, well, not infrequently, I guess I'd say I'll get an email from somebody or they'll catch me at a conference or something. And they'll say, Oh, I got this great idea. You know, I'm thinking about doing X or Y or Z and, and sometimes they have really good ideas. And I say, that's great. You should collect some data, like collect some data. Let me know how it goes. Talk to me. And then let's, let's see what you got. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they'll say things like, oh, this works a hundred percent of the time. It works a hundred percent of the time. And I'll go, okay, collect some data. You know, I'm always like, I'm all about the data. So mm-hmm. I'm like collect some data. And, and in this particular case, like Ron contacts me and, he says, yeah, I've got this idea for this test and I'm thinking that maybe, you know, we make a wider block and by that we're going to start to capture propagation. And I'm thinking, wow, that sounds really promising. And and uh, and then I said, have you collected any data? And Ron says, well, 
I haven't collected that much data. He's like, so far I just have 243 pits. <laughs> and I said, oh, Ron, right on. That's now, a little bit of data. Now you're talking my language, yeah. right? And he, because uh, he'd been patrolling both in, um, in New Zealand and mm. also in Colorado. So he also had pits from coastal snowpack and a continental snowpack. And I said, well, send me the data. So he sent me the data and we started talking a lot about you know, how we code the test, how the test would, um, oh, just a lot of the various parameters around the test. So I sort of helped Ron, you know, Ron had the idea and then I helped him fine tune it and we analyzed it. And then I helped him analyze the data. And, uh, and then there we had it, the extended column test, you know, and, and, um, and again, it's kind of interesting at the same time, but unbeknownst to us, um, Jameson and his students were working on the propagation saw test. Mm-hmm. And I believe that Jörg Schweitzer and one of his students were working on a variant of the propagation saw test as well. Um, so there were a lot of people thinking along these same lines of how can we capture propagation a little more effectively. And um, yeah, so now we have now we have these two tests that are kind of the the new kids on the block, although you know, they seem like new tests to me, but I think for anyone else coming into the industry, they're probably like, oh, those tests have been around for a long time, haven't they? But they've just been around since about 2006, 2007 in that general ballpark. Yeah, I remember coming to the National Avalanche School at Snowbird 10 years ago and and you explaining the extended column test to us. And, and it, you know, it was a big light that went off in my head. And, you know, that was a pretty pivotal moment I remember in my career for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was pretty cool, you know, and um, yeah, I was very appreciative of Ron for contacting me, and and he's been, you know, he's been great to work with since then. We we were still thinking of new topics, a lot of them, a lot of. He's always got a lot of really cool ideas, and and um, but yeah, you know that one of the one of the really cool things about the ECT was that we've been able to track it in our snow pilot database. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in 2006, 2007, the, the big test was the compression test. Then it was Roosh block. Um, we also had stuff block that we used for a while, you know, which was filling up a stuff sack with um, four and a half kilograms or 10 pounds of snow and dropping it from various heights um, to sort of to um, get your taps. Mm-hmm. Same. It's the same as a compression test, but it, helped uh, quantify your tap sort of. It's a little more calibrated. Yeah, a little more calibrated, a little more consistent Mm -hmm. from user to user. Um, But, you know, I think what we realized with this propagation piece was that um, it's not always how hard you have to tap. Um, And how hard you have to tap on a compression test can vary a lot around a slope. whether or not you get propagation can also vary on that slope, but tends to vary a little bit less. And, um, and I think, I think that's important for us, you know, just showing, just showing the ability to propagate or the propagation propensity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The propagation propensity. So, you know, um, we're still dealing with a relatively small block of snow, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, there's definitely problems with that. There's physical problems in terms of, you know, I mean, what you really need is you need to test an entire slope. Mm-hmm. The only way to test an entire slope safely and effectively is with an explosive. 
And so that's your best ability test by far. Right. You know, and then with these different tests, they're hard to, I mean, the bigger they are, the better they're going to capture this idea of this whole slope. But, you know, if they're too big, they're going to take a long time to do. Um, also, you have to figure out how are you going to trigger them? How are you going to start the fracture? And, and uh, yeah, there's just a lot of variables that go into these tests. And, and um, you know, none of them are perfect. But I think with the, with the ECT, uh, we're getting... We're getting closer, and the PST is also a real interesting test. And you know, some of the some of the early research showed that there was a fairly high false stable rate. So, in other words, it would it would um, say that the slope was stable when, in fact, other observations would indicate that that slope was unstable. Mm-hmm. Um, we are currently mining the um the snow pilot database to try to see if you know some of the original work done on the false stable rates for these different tests to try and see if it still holds or if it's changed some Um, my sense is from using the pst is that the false stable rate for it isn't quite as high as maybe some of the first research Hmm. but we don't know for sure and um and we're collecting trying to collect some um, sort of controlled data sets and hoping to present that at ISSW or at some of the SAWs maybe starting next year. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain to our listeners just what Snowpilot is? Because it's a pretty cool program that yeah. that I think helps the whole community. Yeah, Snowpilot is it's great, I think. It's, it, is, um, it was the brainchild of Doug Chabot at the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. Um, he... And, and one of the people that provided some of the inspiration for it in the beginning was uh, Conrad Anker. And so Doug and Conrad were talking about snow pits, and Conrad had just gotten a Palm Pilot. You know, this was back in the early 2000s, and Conrad's going, hey, man, just imagine if you could put your snow pit on this, and then you just come back to the office and you plop it in. And, and it was like, wow, what a great idea, you know? So originally we were thinking, hey, we'd do all these things on on Palm Pilots. It turned out to be... Um, you know, we got a bunch of Palm Pilots donated and they just turned out to be too difficult to use in the field effectively Mm -hmm. at that point, you know? Um, but this whole idea of Snow Pilot, Doug got this whole idea of Snow Pilot off the ground and got funding for it. And what it is, is it's, it's free. It's a free way for people to plot their pits. And, um, and it just underwent, uh, uh, total rehaul last fall and um and it's great it's free um if you want to be able to use your data you can use your data no one else owns your data um but we ask that you let the data come into the snow pilot database and if it's in the snow pilot database then you know we ask that you can that we can use it for research and it's something then that if anybody has an idea like if you had an idea and you said hey I really wonder about X and you approach, uh, approach Doug and Doug would probably, he and I might talk about it or he might just decide. But, um, if you have a interesting idea that you want to approach and you want the data, um, we can pull the data together and send a file to you, you know, and all of a sudden, and right now, 
I'm trying to think. I think there's about eight or nine thousand pits in there. Wow. So we got a lot of information, you know, and and it's a really yeah, it's a it's a resource for the whole community. It's something that um, you know Doug was able to raise enough money for so that none of us have to pay for it. He just pays for this uh, this one uh, developer to develop stuff for it, mm-hmm. and all that information gets database for all of us. So um, and now the way it's set up too, you can set it up so that your your operation like. Like at the Rubies, for example, you could say, hey, we all want to use Snowpilot, but we don't want our pits um, publicly viewable. Like we want to just be able to view them in-house and Doug can set all that up so that you can, you know, the only pits that show up when you open it up are your pits and you can view them all and no one else views them and stuff like that. So there's a lot of flexibility now that's all online. Yeah. It's pretty, it's super user-friendly too, I've found. Yeah. 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 Let's talk a little bit about, you know, we have a kind of a wide variety of listener bases here from recreationists to professional users. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the right stability test for the right problem mm-hmm. and, and when to use what test. Sure. Yeah. So, well, you know, I'm, I'm biased, uh-huh. um, but what we've seen um on the Gallatin and what I've seen from my own observations are most times under most conditions, the ECT gives you the best information and it gives you, um, it's not perfect. It can definitely mislead you, but as long as you're using a snowpack the way you're supposed to use or a snow test the way you're supposed to, which is it's a sign of instability, but it's not a sign of stability. As long as you're using it that way, then it's not going to lead you astray. So, you know, even in our very beginning avalanche classes, we teach people the ECT. In fact, um, in the office, uh, the GNFAC guys have a whole spool of rope and they cut off pieces of that rope and they hand out their, you know, ECT strings to people when they take the class, Mm -hmm. you know, just these classes where it's two nights and one field day. Mm -hmm. Um, and the way we teach it is really basic. We just say, Hey, if you go out and you, you know, you go through all the same steps that everyone talks about, like you need to make good decisions. You need to have pre-trip planning. You need to think about your terrain. You need to decide what kind of terrain you're not going to go into that day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And you need to take observations as you go. Um, and any one piece of unstable information can cause you to turn around. But we always say, you know, when you've collected all that information, if you're still planning on going and skiing that slope, then do a quick pit and do a quick ECT. And if it propagates, think about going to a different slope. Mm-hmm. So it's like your final piece of Swiss cheese on your, on your assessment. You know, you've, you never use it like, oh, I'm not sure whether I'm going to ski this slope. And you you dig and and then you say, oh, I got a stable result. I'm going skiing. You know, you never use it that way. It's not a decision-making tool. No, no. But it is, well, it's a decision-making tool in the fact that it can turn you around. Sure. And the other thing that's really good about stopping and digging is that it tends to remove a lot of the other human factors and biases that mess up our decisions, right? Because all of a sudden we stop and we focus, we take our whole group 
and we focus on the snow instead of talking about the weather or how good the skiing's going to be or anything else. We focus on the snow and we observe the snow and we communicate. So you end up with good communication and we slow everything down. Mm. And, you know, it seems like a lot of times the bad decisions are made when we're just moving too fast. And if we slow down and suddenly you're thinking about the snow for a few minutes and you can have a discussion with the people that you're with, you can start to really beat back some of these human factors and biases that, that, so it really serves a dual purpose, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it also doesn't have to take long, you know, as long as you've got a, a weak layer in the top, you know, two, two and a half feet of snow, you should be able to do an ECT in like five minutes. Yeah. Um, as long as you don't have, you know, it can, it can get tough if you have like really hard ice crusts or, or something like that. But if you have a typical, um, you know, intermountain or, co- or continental snowpack and a piece of string with some, some knots in it and a couple of probes, boom, 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 you know, you can do these things pretty quick and, uh, and get pretty valuable information. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that we've seen, well, one of the things that I've seen recently that concerns me is sometimes people just start talking about decision-making, decision-making, decision-making. And they're like, well, why would we mess with snow pits? Like, it's all about decision-making. And, and my point is that you can't make a decision without data. Like, don't you want the data? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's data under your feet. It's really easy to get at. We know now that you don't have to go on to the really steep slope. As long as you can find a place that's fairly representative, you can be on a more gentle slope. Why would we not get the data and use that as part of our decision-making process, especially as long as folks are trained that it's a piece of information to turn you around, mm-hmm. you know? And if it doesn't turn you around, you know, if you've, if you've gone through this whole process and you go out there and you dig and say it doesn't propagate, you suddenly have even more confidence that you're making the right decision. Right. You know, I mean, Doug and I have talked about this a lot, Doug Chabot and I, because, um, you know, we've gone to a lot of avalanche accidents and so many times we think, oh, I wish this person had just put their f- shovel in the snow. I wish they'd just put their shovel in the snow. Because it was obvious. Yeah, because right. it was super obvious. All of a sudden there's just this big stripe of surface horror across there or whatever, you know, and, and it would have been very obvious in a pit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so a lot of times I'll, I'll try and dig a quick compression test before, you know, a, a small column test before I do a extended column test or a PST known as a large column test. Um, can you just talk about some of the merits of, of doing that or, or do you not do that usually? Yeah, I think there's no problem with doing compression tests, you know, and especially as um, with an advanced user, you have a really good understanding of what that test is telling you. You know about how it's breaking mm-hmm. is really important and you might be able to get it to break off and look at the weak layer and things like that. I know for myself, if I'm just doing an assessment, um, when I do my compression test, I, uh, my next question is always like, what would an ECT do here? Mm-hmm. You know? And so I find myself doing the ECT too, you know, but there's no problem with doing, doing compression tests. There's really no problem with doing a roosh block either. But you know, what we've seen certainly in the snow pilot data is that as these, um, 
propagation tests have gained favor, um, the roosh blocks have just fallen off the chart, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of the number of people that are doing them. Because you can do these, um, you can do an ECT so quickly and you can do it faster than you can do, you know, you can do like four two or five, three, yeah. yeah, or five of them by the time you really get a uh, roosh block excavated. So you might as well do that. Sure. Yeah. yeah and you could test for a little bit more spatial variability through, exactly. through that as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I think a really important point that you brought up, Carl, was talking about starting to do these tests in more safe terrain. So yeah. not right. Let's talk a little bit about site selection for stability tests. Yeah. Well, well, one really interesting thing when um, people were talking about different ways that the snow fractured and some of the ideas that came out of that were, were that, um, that that fracture process might be quite similar in the flats as on steep terrain. And then uh, Bruce Jameson, Dave Godier did a whole bunch of work with the propagation saw test. And one of their findings that really caught my eye when I was, when I was reading it was that they said they were getting similar results in steep terrain as they were on the flats. Hmm. And I thought, wow, like that's really, really important. And the reason it's really important is that, um, you know, how many times have you gone out on, onto a slope and gone, oh, you know, and you're all puckered up. You want to get that, you want to get that stability test in a steep slope, mm-hmm. but you don't want to go out there. And so, um, so after I read that, I thought, well, geez, like what's going on with the, with the ECT? Like, could the ECT have similar results as that? And I just thinking about it physically, it just didn't make sense to me. I thought, no, it, it's gotta be easier to trigger these things on steep, steeper slopes. So we had this slope, we had a weak layer of surface horror and, um, and the slope just gradually went off and got steeper. And we thought, okay, we'll go here and I'll just do a whole bunch of tests. So I went down to this area outside of West Yellowstone and I did tests all day long, did like 30 of them. And I couldn't believe it. You know, we did tests from about mm, 12 degrees up to about 30, low thirties. And all the results were the same within Hmm. a couple of taps on ECTs and all the ECTs were propagating. And I thought, man, that is crazy. So, you know, I took the data back, looked at it. I thought this really just doesn't make sense to me. So I went back two days later and collected a whole nother data set and, um, and got the same results again. And I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this. And, um, so what we found was, you know, as long as the snowpack is, the snow structure is generally similar that you can go on more gentle terrain. Now I'm not saying go on a 10 degree slope or a 12 degree slope. It's almost flat. It's a lot harder to dig, but but certainly you can go on a 20, 25 degree slope and get good information and not be sticking your neck right out, right out there so much. Um, we were wondering if this had to do with the, um, with the way snow is fracturing, but some recent work by um, Johan Gaum in Switzerland, um, he is suggesting that it might, like I was talking to him about it and he said, I said, now, do you think this is because of the way it's fracturing? And he goes, no, I think, I think we just got lucky. And so he thinks that there's some geometrical effects going on hmm. in terms of, um, you know, the size of the weakness and, and the thickness of the slab and a few other parameters such that 
we're getting similar results, even though it should still be in a way, if everything were equal, it should be easier to trigger on a steeper slope. Mm -hmm. But, um, but what we're finding, you know, the, the results still stand, which is that, you know, we're getting similar numbers of taps, um, on these, on these slopes. And, and ultimately, you know, with a test like the, like the ECT, we're more interested when, in whether or not it propagates than, than how many taps it is. Right. I mean, we're interested in both. We if want, the propagation is there. If the propagation is there, you better assume that there's some variability around on the slope. Mm-hmm. And if you have, unless you have a really good reason to believe that uh, you're not going to trigger something or things really aren't going to propagate, um, it's not a bad idea to back off. Sure. You know, so, um, yeah. So, you know, doing the test in a place that's not quite so steep is, is good. But still representative of what you want to ski, right? Yeah. The slope you want to ski. Yeah. So similar aspects, similar elevation, basically adjacent to the, the slope that you're about yeah. to ski. Sometimes if you can find a little small slope mm-hmm. or knob somewhere or yeah. something, um, you know, with snow pits, I've heard people talk about where to dig snow pits as being kind of an art. And I think it is in a way. Um, you don't want to dig like right up next to the ridge top necessarily because a lot of times there's there's a bunch of windblown snow there and it's going to look quite different mm-hmm. once you get off that ridge. Um, you don't want to dig too close to a tree, you know, because because the trees can have an effect on the snowpack, especially where balls have fallen off the tree, balls of snow, and have disrupted the layers. Um, so you want a place that's kind of open, you know, not too steep, hopefully doesn't expose you, um, but has similar characteristics in terms of elevation and aspect to where you want to, where you want to play. So Carl, what's, what's next? What's, what's rolling around in Carl's head in terms (laughs) of the, the the next test out there for stability? Well, yeah, these, I think, I think we might see our current tests evolve a little bit. Um, There's some good work out there right now that suggests that maybe instead of having your propagation saw test, instead of maybe having that be um, 100 centimeters, like maybe it should be more like 120 Mm -hmm. based on, you know, some of the physics going on, some of the fracture mechanics going on with with the way that thing breaks um, to get sort of a more representative result. Um, we talked about that in the latest, latest edition of swag when Mm -hmm. swag got updated and, um, and the decision was made to stick with the test as it has been developed and tested so that we weren't sort of changing things midstream. Right. Um, and that would skew a lot of data that's been collected. Yeah. Potentially, potentially. Yeah. Um, you know, I've actually been thinking that we should play around with some wider, um, wider uh, ECTs, mm-hmm. but um, we need to collect some data, yeah. like because because uh, uh, Ned Bear did some really interesting work where he was looking at two meter ECTs, and I think I think they were just ECTs, um, and what he was finding, you know, he was he was trying to say, well, maybe maybe if we make these really wide we're going to actually get a better representation of what's going on in the snowpack. 
And what he found was that he still had, um, it wasn't really improving the test mm-hmm. in a way that would help us. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly if a two meter ECT goes, it's, it's a scary situation. Sure. But he was finding that, you know, when the two meter ECT didn't go, sometimes a 90 centimeter ECT would go mm. and that slope would still be unstable like mm. that. You know, that slope would still have unstable characteristics. Yeah. And so, yeah, the trade-off of being able to say, wow, every time it goes with this two meter ECT wasn't enough to offset the increase in what we call a false stable rate from that. And, um, but you know, there's just some interesting things going on with these tests, like, and, and Ned really showed that was, which was that, um, there's kind of an attraction of the, of the crack from the, from these open, from the, um, Oh, the, um, the edges, there's an edge effect and, and like an ECT or a PST, we're forcing this fracture basically down this, down this block. And when we actually trigger an avalanche, I think of it more like, like throwing a a rock in the water and we have these ripples going out radially, you know? And so that's different than like forcing a, forcing right down this one block of snow, which might have slight variations in the slab. So maybe the slab breaks when, when radially, you know, you can have a slab break, but if the other side continues, it can come back around the back side of the part that where the slab broke and mm-hmm. the fracture arrested and continue to take out the slope, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of, yeah, with these tests there, I mean, they suffer from the fact that they're just, they're small, right? you know? And if there's a way for us to make them bigger, that would be good, except that would be bad because we'd be doing more digging and it might be harder to get, you know, to start that fracture going in there too. So, um, so yeah, we're still trying to think of, you know, is there a better way to test the snowpack? And, um, you know, I think, you know, you alluded earlier to different tests in different conditions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that we still have a really hard time with are deep slabs. So once that slab gets deeper than about a meter, you know, we've, we found the ECT can be pretty effective depending on the, how hard the slab is up to, you know, a little over a meter. But, um, you know, certainly if you get over a meter and a half, like that's a deep slab and we don't have a good test for that. I mean, we have the deep tap test, um, which, which tests for initiation, not necessarily propagation, right? Yeah. And, and really with the deep tap test, you know, Jameson tells everybody, just look at the, you know, the fracture character, the shear quality. So So if you have a Q1 or a sudden collapse, um, or any sudden failure, you know, you're probably going to have some propagation. Yep. Potentially, you know, but, um, yeah, we don't have, we don't have a really good test for deep slabs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, you can do a propagation saw test. One of the nice things about it is it's one of the few tests that you don't have to bang on the top. Right. So when you're banging on the top and you have a big hard slab underneath it, it's really hard to get the forces down to the weak layer to start your fracture going. And with the propagation saw test, the nice thing is, you just set up that block and just cut it. Um, 
What I've seen with some propagation saw tests, though, we can get, if you have a weak layer and you have a big hard slab on top of it, like you can just get that thing. That thing will propagate all year long, mm-hmm. you know, and and you'll go through periods of time where it'll be active, like after you've popped a big load on top of the slab, then that layer will be active. And then you go through periods of time when that layer's not active anymore. No one's triggering avalanches on it. But even when it's not active, a lot of times with that propagation saw test, you know, you just, you can still get fractures to go. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, none of these, none of these tests are perfect. Right. But they're, they're, I think, you know, my own opinion is that, that um, they're important to teach folks because they can provide them with that one more layer of Swiss cheese at the end of the, of the uh, stability analysis. You know, the flip side is, is that you have to teach them really carefully. You can't just give them the test and say, yeah, you know, this means it's stable and this means it's unstable. No, it's like, this means it's unstable and this means we still don't know. Right. You know, so, so, um, and, you know, I mean, yourself or anyone who has a lot of experience, um, you know, you can realize some of the times when you're getting propagating ECTs that, you know, you can still go skiing. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes with a lot of experience. I mean, the nice thing about the ECT is just that it either propagates or it doesn't. It's fairly easy for a beginner to see that. And if you just tell them, hey, if it propagates, don't go, then that's that's sort of that one more layer of Swiss cheese for them, which is sure. nice, you know, that one more safety layer. Yeah. Well, Carl, I know you've uh, you've highlighted a, a couple personal experiences uh, through patrolling and whatnot, but do you have any good watershed moments in your career, like <laughs> aha moments or close calls with avalanches that have that have really helped form form your your history as an avalanche professional? Yeah, I have a couple. I have a couple of close calls. I think everybody who's just dipping their foot in the water all the time, eventually. You know, if you're, especially if you're not careful enough, you, you'll have a close call. And, and, um, my first close call came, um, it was when, it was my second year of ski patrolling at Snow Basin. I think it was the second year. See, there's the first or the second year, but we, um, a group of us on our day off went out of bounds and we went over to this area and, um, you know, we dug a pit up near the top of this slope and everything looked good. Of course, we were just doing shovel shears <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, the snowpack was fairly deep. And then we said, okay, we're going to ski from here to down to there. And I was going to ski first and then the other people were going to follow. And I skied down this slope and, you know, we hadn't seen any avalanche activity for quite some time at this point. So we're, we're thinking things are pretty, bomber otherwise we wouldn't have been out there and um i ski down and the skiing's really good and and i'm thinking oh, i don't know if i really want to stop like right here below everybody so i went around the corner from where everybody could see me and then i skied another you know dozen turns or more and then i skied up onto this little ridge underneath a tree because i thought okay now this is going to be a safe place for me to be and I skied up under the, this tree and I probably descended, you know, more than a thousand feet off of the top 
maybe even 1500 feet. And as I, you know, and now I'm totally out of view of my, my party. We've got like four of us or so. And I, I ascend onto this little ridge underneath this tree and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do a kick turn here and then I'll hold onto this tree and I'll call up to those guys. And as I'm kick turning, the whole slope collapses. And by the time I flip my other ski around, like the trees six, eight feet away and I'm taken off on a pretty big hard slab and it's about, you know, two, two and a half feet deep. And, um, it's running on depth or, I mean, the snowpack had changed entirely from where we were before to where I was. And I hadn't taken that into account. I hadn't taken into account just how different the snow would be that far away from that first, um, that first pit. And I was pretty fortunate in that I got my feet swung around and the snow was kind of heading down into this gully, but the blocks were probably, they were big and hard. And I sort of get kicked onto my, onto my um, hip, but I'd sort of be able to push myself up. And I was working my way very slowly toward the side of the avalanche. Um, and it seemed like a long time, but I think it probably wasn't very long. And I just thought if I can just get my tips to the edge and I just got my tips to where the snow wasn't moving and boom, you know, it just pulled me like right mm. out and up the other side. And then I looked behind me, you know, and the thing had gone, oh, you know, it'd gone at least a hundred yards wide. And, um, you know, there were huge piles of debris and, and, um, and the other people skied down and, um, and we all sort of debriefed and then we had to work our way back across some terrain, but yeah, it was, a, it was eye opening. It was like, you know, a lot of mistakes. Um, the mistake of, um, going out of sight of my partners, mm -hmm. um, we had communicated a plan. I didn't stick to that plan. Um, we, and I didn't really take into account just how much the snow was going to change in that distance that I traveled. So, yeah, but it, Turned out to be a good learning experience. Yeah. Which is always good. <laughs> and maybe the beginning of a fascination with spatial variability. Huh? That was yeah, <laughs> that was one of the that was one of the things. I had another I had another avalanche I was caught in and it was really small. And the lesson from that one for me was that like even small avalanches are really powerful. Yeah. And I I was I was on a newer pair of skis and I had to go across this little zone that was only like Oh man, it must have been like 10, maybe 12 feet wide. Mm -hmm. And I knew the snowpack was crappy. I knew the avalanche danger was high. Um, but it was such a, just this little small patch and it maybe went about like three or four feet above me. But instead of taking the time to like sidestep up and go above me, I, I just thought, Oh, I'm just going to push over there and there's a tree over there. And if anything slides, I'm going to jump and I'm going to grab that tree. And I started across this little thing and the snow was kind of unconsolidated and I sunk through and it was only like, you know, 18 inches deep maybe, but it's, I, as I sunk through it collapsed and I heard it collapse and I jumped and I grabbed the tree, but my skis were still partially under the snow. And I mean, it's like, it's like uh, swimming a big rapid with a couple of pickle buckets on your feet. You know, I mean, you, you can't grab onto a rock like that. And right. I grabbed onto that tree and that thing ripped me off that tree so fast. And that when, you know, and then it was a very small avalanche and it just pushed me out into this little flat and I just got up and moved out of the way. I was really, 
you know, I was fortunate because it could have collapsed that bowl and then that would have taken out more snow. But, um, but then I got down there and I thought, did I actually grab that tree? Cause it all happened so fast. And I looked at my jacket and I had like sap all up and down my jacket and underneath my jacket and all my layers. Like I had these huge abrasions on the inside of my arm. So I had, I had grabbed pretty hard onto that tree, but yeah. <laughs> so that was a case of where like, I knew it was super unstable and I knew that particular slope could go. And so it was very stupid of me to just take a couple steps across it. But then, um, I really underestimated how much force those avalanche, you know, even a really small avalanche can have. Mm-hmm. Wow. Some pretty good lessons there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we hope, you know, you, you hope that the lessons that you get are, are small. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it always kills me. You know, we go out to look at these avalanches and sometimes these young kids who get caught in these avalanches. And I just think, I think, oh my goodness, you know, like they never got that first lesson. Right. Like, cause sometimes the first lesson you get is the last one. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, Dave McClung said once, I think that, um, you know, the first, the first test might be the final exam. And, um, and so it just kills me thinking about, you know, some of these kids where, you know, if something had happened just a little bit differently, they'd been a little bit higher on the slope or they'd been, you know, or, or they just had the luck to end up on the surface instead of ending up buried or they hadn't hit that tree or whatever. Um, they very well might've pursued a career doing avalanche work and they wouldn't, you know, and everything would have been fine. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's the nature of this stuff is it's pretty, can be pretty random sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, boy, if, if you're unlucky or if it's just, you know, if, if the numbers just roll up wrong for you, man, you can even just a very small mistake can have serious consequences. Absolutely. It can be a wicked environment, can it? Yeah. Yeah. You really have to, I mean, I always say, you know, like you have to figure out where the edge is and you don't want to like, take a fine sharpened pencil and then tiptoe right up to that very edge. Like you want to take a big old fat Sharpie and draw where you think the edge is. And then you want to take like three big steps back from that edge. And that's kind of where you want to operate because you're going to probably still get surprised. Mm -hmm. And, and, but you want those surprises to be very few and far between, or you're just not going to last very long. Yeah. You know, so you really have to give. And I think that's what happens too as you get older is you see so much, especially in, in our profession. You know, you, you, you see accidents, you read about accidents, you go investigate avalanches and you realize that like you need a big safety margin. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to stick with this business for a long time. Yeah. Hedge your bets with those terrain margins. Too. Exactly. Yeah. The terrain margins. Uh, the snowpack, you know, mm-hmm. um, how are you feeling that day? If you just, you know, it's like with your, you know, people talk about following your gut feeling. Well, don't follow your gut feeling if it's telling you that it's safe. Yeah. Collect some data, try and figure out, but follow your gut feeling. If, if your gut feeling is things are crappy and you are collecting data that says that it's good, but you're still feeling uneasy, follow that gut feeling, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the same 
as with the snow pit, you know, use it to turn yourself around, use your gut, to turn yourself around. Don't use it the other way to convince right. yourself that it's a safe day out there. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of challenge yourself if everything is looking like it's a go. Yes, for right. sure. Yeah. Yeah. If it's looking like it's a go, definitely challenge yourself and, and try and figure out, you know, um, yeah, what's, what's, uh, well, I liked, I, I was listening to one of your podcasts coming down here and I was listening to the one about, I think it was Noah Howell maybe. And, and I think he was the one that said, or maybe it was someone else that said in one of your podcasts, but they were talking about how, um, you know, think about what the avalanche accident report would look like if something happened on that day. Yeah. We, and, we, we talk about it as like a pre-mortem, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of the post-mortem of the accident report. Yep. How would it read? And I've, I've done that a lot mm-hmm. with people, you know, especially when I'm out with guys at the avalanche center or other, other professionals and you'll be sitting there and you'd be like, wow, I think we could get away with skiing this today. And then you look at each other and you go, now, wait, how would that look? Like based on the results that we have in our pit books, based on what we've seen, I mean, how would that look? It would look, it would look awful. Mm-hmm. And if you're, I mean, if you're, if that's, you know, you need to check back with the data. Right. And, and if it would look awful, then you sure as heck shouldn't be skiing that day. Yeah. Or skiing that terrain, maybe. Sure. Yeah. Choose something else. Yeah. Well, it's all pretty sage advice from a, from a guy <laughs> who's made a long career out of, out of making decisions and assessing snowpack and stability. So. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Carl. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you also have a, a pretty good YouTube channel, I think with, with Doug Chabot, right? Avalanche guys. Yeah. Yeah. People can find that on YouTube. Yep. Yep. And that's, uh, that's, <clears throat> you know, the, the YouTube channel for the Galton mm-hmm. National Forest Avalanche Center. And, um, yeah, it was pretty funny. You know, the, I think, I think Doug probably shot the first YouTube video, um, we were out one day and um, we had this this kind of unstable snow and we were kind of talking and we're like, hey, we should we should do a video of this little of this test, you know. So so like Doug, Doug just is, you know, he had his camera and he's like, yeah, I'll just I'll just shoot a video of you doing a compression test here. And so I like I did this compression test and then talked about the the layer that we had and stuff and. And, um, and we thought, yeah, we could use that for a class or something. Mm-hmm. And we went back to the office and, uh, and Doug's like, yeah, there's this thing called YouTube that I think you can just put videos on. And I just kind of laughed and said, yeah, you could, you probably put it on YouTube someday. And he's like, yeah, maybe someday I'll put it on YouTube. And then I came in the next morning and he's like, he's like, you wouldn't believe how easy YouTube is. He's like, I just downloaded that thing on YouTube and put a link out there. And I'm like, wow, what a great idea, you know? And, and sure enough, you know, now what, um, what a lot of these avalanche centers have found is that, uh, you know, it's, it's a great way to get the information across because it works really well for beginners. Yeah. You know, I mean, they can, they can see what's going on in the snowpack or see what's happening on the hillside or see that avalanche. Um, and I find as an advanced user, I love it because you can watch exactly what happens in their stability tests or, or, you know, you can see the avalanche or whatever. And, um, it gives you, so, so that information really can span the whole 
knowledge base from your rank beginners out to your, you know, your mom can watch that and tell you, whoa, boy, things are sketchy out there. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, your professional can watch it and, and really get a lot out of it too. So I think those, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's a pretty cool tool. Yeah, yeah. And it's so easy, you know, anymore with digital cameras and you just, you know. You don't always get the right sound quality, especially when the wind's blowing. But, sure. You know, we get you can the visual. Make it work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. um, well, Carl, thanks a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I really appreciate sitting down and talking to you. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, keep putting out the podcast. They sound great. And uh, it's fun to hear what everybody has on their mind. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for listening. Check out the website, www.theavalanchehour.com. To get links to other shows, check out the bios of our guests, buy some swag to help support the show, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Want to be entered to win a pair of Black Diamond's Helio gloves? This award-winning three-in-one glove system provides protection from a wide range of weather conditions while keeping it light and right. All you have to do is tag us in a post on social media and you'll be entered to win. Thanks to the sponsors of our show, TAS Gazex, Black Diamond, and Ten Barrel Brewing. Music today was performed by Little Glass Men and Broke for Free, made possible by the Creative Commons license and found on freemusicarchive.com. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. Check out his website at MikeT.com. That's T-E-A. We'll be back with you on February 1st when we sit down and hear from Weston Deutschlander about a near miss he had guiding last year. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.